one of the associate pastors, and I am so happy to be here joining you guys today. Um, I was just thinking about this song, actually. Um, I love... I love that the Bible says, sing to the Lord a new song, right? God commands us that, yes, there are some beautiful, wonderful hymns, but after a while, I think God kind of like me gets tired of what's on the radio. Like, can we do something new? Right? It's one of the reasons I quit listening to the radio, because after a while, it's like, I have heard these same five songs. And if you're into classic rock, I have heard these same five songs for 30 years, right? (laughs) They haven't changed. And so I love that the Lord says, hey, sing to us a new song. But I do, there is, the older I get and the more that I read about the Lord and read into theology, the more that I really enjoy some of the stuff that's in the old hymns. And I was thinking about the song Amazing Grace, right? And I did not know much about this song until they they made a movie called Amazing Grace. And it's about the life of a man named William Wilberforce. And he was a man in England who was touched by God and he helped bring about the end of slavery in England, he helped get slavery abolished in England, and he, he was a big fan of this particular song. This song meant a lot to him because he met the man who wrote the song, and the guy that wrote the song, Amazing Grace, was the captain of a slave ship for a very long time. He was responsible. He was the man that was put in charge of bringing slaves from Africa either up to Europe or out to some of the colonies. And then one day he was touched by God and he, had, he, did, he, realized at the, he realized then how wrong it was and he eventually went blind, but he gave up a very lucrative job. Being a ship captain was worth a lot of money and it was a very hard job to get. And he gave it up when he realized what he was doing and he wrote the song Amazing Grace when he was broken and he realized how much that the Lord had forgiven him when he repented of what he was doing. And so when you realize that it was written by a man who was broken and repentant for being part of the slave trade, you just realize the depths of that song when you start singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And sometimes, I don't know, I'm thinking I grew up in a, I grew up in a Christian church and a Christian household and I didn't have like a crazy testimony. I had friends that had crazy testimonies, but I, I did not. And so I, I didn't share my testimony a lot because, you know, at the ripe old age of four, I decided to give up a life of milk and cookies and, you know, <laughs> turn over to the Lord. And I was like, my testimony doesn't mean much. You know, I was not a slave ship captain. I had friends that were, you know, that were drug dealers and I had friends that were gang members and, you know, they, they gave their lives to the Lord and they would talk and you would see people crying because of all oh, the Lord had forgiven them. I'm like, yeah, I don't have much. To in, the, in the way of that, and then a friend of mine convicted me, and he said, you were still destined for hell. You were still destined for hell, and God forgave you out of his richness and his mercy. And so ever since then, I love this song when I start thinking, even though sometimes I don't have a crazy testimony, just how wonderful and how beautiful a song like Amazing Grace is when you start thinking about the grace of God. And none of that has anything to do with what we're doing today, but <laughs> it just struck me. And it was funny, um, I was telling Dan and some other folks that when um, the, the very first time I was asked to teach, I was at another church and I was involved in youth ministry. And they said, hey, Justin, on the Wednesday night service, we have junior high and high school because they had a fair size youth group. Could you teach a Wednesday night junior high Bible study? I was like, I can do that. And I ran 15 to 20 minutes short. Like, I had prepared, and I got to the point. I did not waste time, and I was just like, boom, 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 stop it, repent, we're good, 
and uh, we're going to play some games because we got about 15 minutes to kill. And so I was like, oh man, I've always got this fear that, Lord, did I prepare enough? Do I have enough to bring, to offer to people because I don't want to run short? And I had another pastor at one time told me, trust me, Justin, congregants will never complain if you run short and you let them go early, because most of the time it's the other way around. So with that, we will pray and get into this morning's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for all that you've done and all that you've given us. And Lord, I, thankful, I am so thankful that you are gracious. And Lord, when we do reflect on things like your amazing grace and your love and the things that we've been forgiven for, Lord, I pray that you would forgive me for being so arrogant sometimes to think that your grace was more sufficient for others and not for me, Lord, that there are other people who needed more grace than I did, Lord. We, I pray that you would never let me be that arrogant again. And I pray that you would be with us this morning, Lord, if you can speak through a donkey to his prophet, Lord. And if you said that um, if your disciples did not call out to you, that you would the rocks would cry out. So if you can speak through donkeys and rocks, you can speak through me. And I pray that you would bless this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we are continuing through Psalms, and I love the book of Psalms because I think, I don't know, me personally, I love being in the book of Psalms because it reminds me of what my emotional life is actually like. There are some really happy Psalms. There are some great Psalms of triumph when, things, when amazing things have happened. They've conquered things. There are songs of, Psalms of joy, and then there's Psalms where people are going through some really hard things. And I was thinking, I was talking to another friend of mine that if for a long time, mental health was something that was kind of kind of stigmatized in church a, lo a long time ago that, you know, maybe if you just had more faith, then, you know, you would get over, you could get over something, right? Well, you're, you're depressed because you don't have enough faith. And we come to realize years later that, well, you know, sometimes we take, we take medicine when our pancreas ain't working right. You know, we take, uh, we take insulin when our blood sugar ain't right, and they make medicine when your brain chemicals ain't right. But one of the things that I really love about the book of Psalms is that it shows that there are some very powerful, very used men of God that went through some very deep and dark and depressed times. There were some guys that struggled like, God, this is so bad, I don't even know if I want to live anymore. And that, one of my personal favorites, too, are the Psalms where, like, David is angry at his enemies. Like, because I don't know about you, but I grew, I, I did a lot of work in, in, in Los Angeles, and I um. I try not to laugh when I go to other places, but when people talk about how bad the traffic is, like, I laugh on the inside, like, oh, honey, and I get a little condescending. Like, <laughs> yes, you're, you, have, you have traffic, but there were people that were blown away that I would work at the airport and live in Marana, and they're like, that's like a 30-minute drive. I'm like, 30 minutes? The heater ain't even warmed up yet. Like, <laughs> so I understand when David's talking about the enemies and he gets so angry and he's like, God, may you turn their teeth like water and let it run down the back of their throat. I've been in traffic. I understand. Like, Lord, just let their teeth look more. But we are in Psalm 130 this morning, and this is another song, another psalm of ascent. And um, I was listening to a, a guy who was, a, who was Jewish and a Christian one time, and he was telling me that in, um, in Judaism and in Israel, they say they're always going up to Jerusalem. Even if they're north of Jerusalem and they're heading south, they are always going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is on a hill. And Jerusalem is not only the capital, but that is the center of worship. You know, I think one of the great things about being a Christian now is that um, 
after, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we don't need someone to go between us and God. If you've got a problem, you can go straight to God. If you're hurting, you can go straight to God. If you want to repent of your sins, if you've realized you've wronged someone, you can go to them and you can go straight to God. There was a point in time where to be right with God, you had to go to Jerusalem. If you wanted to be right with God and you wanted to repent of your sin, you had to offer a blood sacrifice. You had to offer a dove. You had to offer a heifer. You had to offer a lamb. There were different sacrifices for different things. So I was trying to put myself in this frame of thought because I can't relate. My entire life, I've been told if I have a problem, I can go straight to God. And while we, I don't want to be disrespectful to a church, God's everywhere. Like, this is not the epicenter of my Christian faith, is this church. Because God is with me in my car, God is with me in my house, God is with me in my hospital room. So I was trying to imagine what it would be like if I wanted to be a good, God-honoring, God-loving person, that Jerusalem would mean so much to me, because that's where God's presence sat over the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God sat. And I would go to Jerusalem because I wanted to be right with God and I would offer a sacrifice. And as the head of my own household now, I would offer sacrifices not only for me, but for my wife and for my kids, for my family. We wanted to be in right standing of God. So I'm thinking to myself, a song of ascent. And he said they would sing this as they're walking up into Jerusalem because everyone goes up to Jerusalem. So as you are walking and you're going up the hill into Jerusalem, you're going through certain psalms because you're trying to get your heart in the right place. You're trying to be right before God. So as you're going up the hill, you're going through some of these songs, and a lot of them are songs of repentance because you're trying to prepare your heart for worship. You're trying to prepare your heart for sacrifice before the Lord. And that wasn't something that ever really dawned on me for a long period of time. Right. You would I would go to things and I would be like, I didn't understand what people really meant and said, like, I'm preparing my heart for worship. I'm like, you go and you worship and then God talks to you like you need to prepare your heart. And then it dawned on me one day when someone said, like, preparing your heart to go somewhere We were I was in a meeting and we were talking about a junior high and a high school renter retreat that were coming up. And so we were getting ready for a winter retreat and I'm sitting in a room with the youth pastor and some other leaders. And one of the other youth leaders, a good friend of ours named Nikki, was talking about how she had been praying all week that the Lord would begin to move her heart and speak to her before she went to this retreat. And I thought about it, and I'm like, you know, I don't really do that all that often. Like, I go to a retreat to be moved, but I don't really take the time and stop and saying, like, Lord, can you prepare me to be moved, and can you prepare me to move other people when I go to the retreat? When I go to a worship conference, when I go to church on a Sunday morning, I come to church to get my heart right, but I, it never dawned on me that maybe I should start getting my heart right before I get there, not while I was there. And so that was something that I was thinking about this week as we're getting ready to move into the Psalms, right? I mean, as we're in the Psalms and we're getting ready to move into Psalm 130, that this is a time when people were preparing their hearts to worship God. They were preparing their hearts to get right with the Lord, to sacrifice, to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. Not the Passover, this would probably been Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So they're, they're, they're walking up the hill to Jerusalem, and it doesn't matter if they come from the north or the south or the east or the west. If they're coming into Jerusalem, there's various gates, and they're going up to 
the Temple Mount, they are all walking up to Jerusalem, and they're preparing their hearts on the way in there. And so, man, I don't always come to church with this attitude, and I pray that the I'm, I'm grateful that the Lord convicted me about it because I needed a change. And I'm thinking about these old heritages and these old customs that they have, and this is a culture, this is something that they have done for centuries. And I was, I was thinking about what it meant to be a Jew and what these customs would mean, because I don't have really a great frame of reference for old customs because I, I'm originally from California and California is not a very old culture, right? We've only been around a few years. And I was really blessed to meet some friends of mine. Um, I got to work, live and work internationally and you meet people from different places in the world where their civilization and their culture has been around for thousands of years. I googled it just out of curiosity and the the, the Jewish religion, the Jewish people have been practicing Passover for 3,000 years. 3,000 years. Like, I can't imagine, I don't even know what we did 100 years ago in California besides dig for gold. Like, I don't, <laughs> we don't have, we remodel anything. They're like, dude, that was built in the 80s. Let's rip it down and build something new. Like, nobody likes this stuff from the, like, it looks old. Let's rip it down, build new stuff. And so I was trying to think, what does it mean to be from an old culture? I looked up, um, I had a friend on the ship who was from Japan, a really nice guy. He was, uh, he was our navigation officer. He was Japanese, and I, I did not know this existed. He played the electric fiddle. I did not know there were electric violins, but there are electric violins. They look nothing like regular violins. But he played the electric violin, and I was asking him questions about his culture, and you find out that there are things in their, they, they have things in their culture that mean so deep. The way, like a fan, a little hand fan, and the way that a woman holds a hand fan and fans herself means a variety of things. Here, if you're holding a fan, it means the air conditioning quit working and we're in Arizona. <laughs> like, there's no deep meaning. The way that if you hold a fan like this versus like this versus like that versus, and the way that you, it doesn't mean anything. Over there, they've got fans from the 6th century. The way they do things has very deep meaning. When you go to very old cultures, the way that you, put, you fold your napkin, the way that you put your silverware next to your plate, the way that you put your silverware on your plate when you're done eating communicates things about what you thought about the meal in the restaurant. I always just tossed them back on the plate because I was done eating. I don't have a frame of reference, so I'm trying to think, what is it like to be from some of these deep, old cultures with a rich tradition and a rich heritage of getting right with the Lord and walking up to Jerusalem because I frankly don't understand. In fact, I, when we study cultures, they talk about young cultures and old cultures where things, in, like I said, things in Japan have very deep meaning. Places in Europe, some places in China, like places in, in old places, France and England, the way certain things are done can have some very deep meaning because that culture has been around for so long I didn't realize, too, they, they forewarn you when you go places, like, the way, that you, the way that you wave at people means a whole bunch of different stuff. Like, if you ask somebody to come over here for a second, in certain cultures, that is super disrespectful because that's how you wave at a dog. But if you wave like this, then you're fine. Okay. I'm really offensive, so I just found out, like, great. thankfully, everybody kind of, like, he's American. He don't know nothing. So, like, there's a lot of, gra there's a lot of grace there. 
But the way that you do things carries deep, deep meaning. But they said in places like Australia and places like California, that culture has only been around a few hundred years. Like there's not a lot of deep meaning. That was funny. You go visit the East Coast and the clothes that you wear to church are a big deal. Right, everybody. I met. Oh, I had some friends that are Dutch Reformed, and I love the Dutch Reformed. Their devotion to theology and Scripture is amazing. But they go to church and they starch their ties and their collars and their jacket. Like they are very put together. And I was from a Calvary Chapel in California where you put on your best Hawaiian shirt and your nicest flip flops. Right, these are my new ones. These flip flops don't have stains on them yet. Like these are the. It was funny. Actually, I had a friend that went to a church back east, and they looked at him and they said flip-flops to church, huh? And he's like, oh, don't worry, these are my church flip-flops. <laughs> and the guy laughed. He's like, oh, yeah, those are your church flip-flops. So there's a difference in some of these old cultures that some of these things can really mean something. Some of these things really mean something. So this is known to be Psalm 130 is the sixth out of the seven songs of contrition and repentance. There are seven songs that really have led a lot of people to repentance and led a lot of people to feeling feeling bad about their sins, right? I ain't going to church it up too much. They realized they were sinful and they needed saving and they were repenting of their sins. So this is the sixth out of the seventh songs of repentance. And both, I found out, I did not know this, but this is both John Calvin's and Augustine's favorite psalm, which I thought was pretty cool. It has also been said that God used this psalm in the conversion of John Wesley, that John Wesley heard as a pastor, John Wesley heard this psalm being preached on and realized he was not broken over his sin and he had gone through seminary and he had gone through church and did not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, I was listening to uh, one of my favorite missionaries and preachers and sometimes he had been a little controversial because of his, his hard stance on a lot of things, but he was a missionary for a long time down in South America and he said when he met his wife, his wife was also a missionary, and they met, and they got to know each other, and they started falling in love. And she realized after listening to her future husband preach that she had grown up in church, and she is on the mission field, and she did not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. She had never, she had never thought about it. She had never repented of her sin. She didn't know she needed to depend on Jesus for her salvation, and so as a missionary, she got converted on the mission field. And, you know, that kind of struck me that there's a lot of people in churches. There's a lot of people in seminaries. There's a lot of people in ministries. And there's a lot of people all over the place that the Bible says will claim the name of Christ. And they'll say, like, Lord, didn't we do work for you? We cast out demons. We did all these things. And he said, depart from me. I never knew you. Salvation is more than just this like existential belief that yes, there is a God. You know, that's like people saying like, yeah, I believe in gravity. Oh, well, yeah, there's a God. Yeah, but do you, do you know him? Have you ever met God? Have you repented of your sin? Do you put your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ? Have you asked him for forgiveness of your sins? It was something that I thought was, it kind of blew my mind and made me worried when I was younger that there are some very nice people who don't know Jesus Christ and they go to churches and they said, well, yeah, I've gone to church my entire life. Well, yeah, I, I've volunteered in Sunday school. I went to the church cleanup days. I got involved in the soup kitchen. I believe in the existential existence of God. I was like, that's not what he's talking about. That's not salvation. Salvation is realizing that you are a sinner in need of salvation and that all the good things ain't going to get you there. It just means that you're a good person. 
and you'll die a good person. And it was something that I, really, I was really thinking about when I was reading through the Psalms. There are some very nice people that have never cried out to God in desperation for forgiveness. So with that big of a run-up, I'll go ahead and read Psalm 130. It said, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, O God, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his words I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all iniquities. So I want to go back and read verse 1 again. It said, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. The psalmist is reaching out from a really deep and dark place in his life. And we're not really sure 100% who wrote this psalm. Most everybody agrees that it was probably David. It was probably David that wrote this psalm. There, it may have been one of the prophets, but we think it's David. And we're not sure if he wrote this in the time that he's being chased by Saul or the time after he had committed sin with Bathsheba. We're not sure where it is that this, in his life that this psalm was written, but he's crying out from a place of pain and a place of darkness, and he's asking for the Lord's help. He's crying out from a place of pain and brokenness. And it kind of reminds me of, a, of another story. I know I was sharing a little bit about the song Amazing Grace, but um, there was another one that really kind of stuck with me as I, was teach, as I was teaching through this or studying through this. And it's a story about a man named Horatio Spafford who lived in the 1800s. He lived from like 1828 to 1888. And Horatio placed his trust in God during his life's prosperity, but it said, but also during its calamities. A devout Christian man who immersed himself in scripture and many years of his life were joyous. He was a prominent Chicago lawyer and his business was thriving. He owned a lot of property throughout the city and he, and he was getting rent from it. And he, was, he had a beloved wife, four daughters and a son. His life was good. It was blessed. But faith, no matter how great, does not spare us from adversity. Just as Horatio hit the pinnacle of his profession and his financial success, his life began to change. He lost his son, and not long after his son passed away, the great Chicago fire destroyed almost every piece of property that he owned. Just a few years later, in 73, Horatio decided to treat his wife and his daughters to a much-needed escape from the turmoil, and he sent them on a boat trip to Europe. And he was going to come join them just after he wrapped up a little bit of business he had to take care of in Chicago. And just a few days later, he received a telegram from his wife that said, Saved alone. It bore the excruciating news that his family's ship had wrecked and all four of his daughters had drowned. Horatio was on his way to meet his heartbroken wife, passing over the same area that had just claimed the lives of his remaining children. And it was then that he put his pen to paper and he wrote this song and asked if, um, if we can find that song. He said, When peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like the sea billows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well with my soul it is well with my soul 
It is well with my soul. Thou, Satan, should buffet, those trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regard my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Oh, my, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole. It is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. And the Lord haste the day when my faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. He wrote that song while he was sailing over where his daughters had drowned after his son had died, after his property had burned. You want to talk about a Job experience. And, in, and later on, so moved by that song that a composer, Philip Bliss, put that, um, put that music to a hymn. I was thinking about that as I was going through this psalm. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. And I realize that a lot of times in my life, like I, and like most of us, I don't usually cry out to God when things are going well because I have short-term memory loss, right? You forget that you just came out of a trial. You're like, oh, thank God, things are better now, right? Like things are going good. My truck's not broken. I got a decent tax return. And, you know, like the kids are behaving. Nothing in the house has gone wrong yet. Nobody's sick. We had tacos last night. Like things are good. <laughs> things are good. And I don't realize that, man, more the, I need to, I cry out to God more when things are not going great. And I love the fact people ask, why would I want to be a Christian when things are going good? And I said, you know, it doesn't really matter when things are going good, but I tell you what, it's when things are not going good and having somebody there that can, that can carry you. Sometimes we suffer for no reason or no fault of our own. Sometimes we didn't do anything. I don't know, I don't, you know, I'm not God, but it doesn't sound like Horatio did anything to deserve this. Job, we read in the Bible, didn't do anything to deserve his life. Sometimes we suffer for no reason. Sometimes we suffer for the sake of Christ, right? I was thinking, um, I, w I read the book, and they made a movie about it a few years ago called Tortured for Christ, which is written by a man named Richard Wormbrand, who was a Polish Christian during the fall of the during actually the rise of the Iron Curtain and he was tortured because he refused to give alms to communism and he refused to he refused basically to point people in his church toward communism because he said it's about Jesus and he was in prison and tortured for years and they finally got him out of and he wanted to go back to Poland but the communists were still looking for him and the, the Polish church said, you need to go to the U.S. And, and tell people what's happening behind the curtain. He did nothing other than follow Jesus, and he was tortured for it. 
Sometimes we suffer for God. Sometimes we suffer just because we're idiots, right? right? I love the guy. I'm, I had a friend, and I love him dearly, but, you know, he used to, like, he worked at a restaurant, and he would wear, like, 18 rings and bracelets and necklaces that all said Jesus on them, and then he was the hostess, and anytime someone would come in, he's like, a table for two? Okay, have you ever met my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And they're like, dude, you need to stop. Like, this is a Chili's. Like... <laughs> I'm being, I'm being persecuted for my faith. I'm like, no, dude, you're being persecuted because you're weird. Like, <laughs> stop. It's okay to be a Christian at work. But them telling you not to tell everyone that comes in about Jesus and, you know, we have a dress code. Can you not wear this much? Like, that's, that's on you. That's not on them. <laughs> and sometimes, and, you know, honestly, too, sometimes we suffer because we, of our own mistakes, I have suffered because of stupid things that I have done, and the Lord has allowed me to feel the consequences. There is forgiveness, but there are some hard things that I've walked through because they were my fault and my decision. But we all, we are all eventually going to go through it, and there is a saying that if you're not in a trial right now, you better start praying because it's coming. But we can all agree that we walk through hard seasons. Verse 2, verse 2. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. I love this posture of humility. This posture of humility. So first off, he realized the psalmist is coming from a place in life that is very hard. We don't know if he's, if he's trying to be killed because he's God anointed. We don't know if he lost his son because of an adultery he committed and he's been confronted with his own sin. Committed adultery and murder. And now he's sitting and he's wrestling with his sin. But I love of this posture that he comes in, in in chapter 2. He's crying out to God in verse 2. Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my prayer. He's coming to God in a place of humility. In a place of humility. And I was thinking about that, how often that is lacking in my life. And how much that is lacking, especially right now in our culture. Right? In our culture, we do not see humility being something that is promoted right? We're being told to go get yours, that, you know, other people need to accommodate us. In fact, I was, I was, I was for fun, and I don't recommend this too often because I get a little angry, but some of them are funny. I was looking up stories about, they call them Karens. Like, what are the funniest Karen stories that I can find on the internet? And I found a couple good ones. It said, I am the nephew of a Karen, and I was visiting her, and she needed to stop by Walgreens, she had a newspaper ad that stated that some of the candles were 50% off. So she bought like 10 of them, and she got charged full price and flipped out. We're talking like playing a dollar per candle instead of 50 cents per candle. The cashier and I both showed her that she was holding a new, an, an old newspaper and that the offer expired a week ago. And then she shifted, well, you could have told me more nicely and kept yelling, and I just kept telling her we needed to leave. Once I finally got into the car, I told her I forgot to grab my gum, so I went back and apologized to the cashier. Another one, we went to a hotel one night for dinner. The hotel had a pool that was clearly only for guests and was indicated by a dozen signs surrounding the pool. My mother told my little brother and I that we were allowed to use the pool and had us wear our bathing suits under our clothing so that we could get easily get into the pool after we changed. Well, the they clearly have employees monitoring the pool, and not long after we jumped into the water, security calmly came by and asked to see our hotel room keys. Since we weren't staying there and didn't have room keys, we were politely asked to leave. 
My mother refuses and insisted that we were within our rights because we ate dinner there. A screaming match ensued, and hundreds of people turned around to stare at us, and finally the head of security escorted us off after saying that we could either leave or that they could call the police. My dad got banned from Ford, the only place that his car insurance covers, um, covered the three-year late oil change he needed because they had a vending machine that sold Arizona iced teas for $1.25. Well, well, he said he can get them for only 99 cents. He didn't have to buy it, nor did he want the Arizona iced tea. He was screaming at the front desk because the vending machine wasn't owned by Ford and they were most certainly not in control of the prices. I have no idea what he was hoping to gain, but he screamed at the Ford guy because the vending machine was, I don't know, 30 cents more expensive than, uh, 25, 30 cents more expensive than the gas station. My mom attempted to change my sister's diaper on the table in a crowded restaurant and went ballistic when the waitress asked her to use the restroom and then had me change her while she argued with everybody sitting around us. My dad once got into a screaming match with someone because of the TSA pre-check lane at an airport. He couldn't use it, but insisted he could, and then he started screaming at me because I told him I didn't think we could use it. And these go on and on and on, um, and I had to stop myself. Oh, this was one I liked. My mom harassed... <laughs> Some of these are just funny. My mom harassed my elementary school so much over small things and caused such a big fuss that they did not let my niece, who they knew was my mom's granddaughter, come back. They just didn't want to deal with her anymore to the point of kicking my niece out of the school. Those poor teachers did not get paid enough. (laughs) My mom complained about the food she got for free from a food pantry that she was taking advantage of while she was getting $5,000 a month in spousal support that she didn't have to report as income. (laughs) You know, like, these are funny. But the sad thing is these things happen. And I also really feel bad for anyone named Karen. I do apologize. Like, no one saw this coming. And so I had friends named Karen, and I'm like, I am so sorry. Nobody saw this coming. Hopefully this fad will pass. But the psalmist is coming from a place of humility, and so often I come from a place of arrogance. We laugh, but my conscience gets pricked. And God, I have served you faithfully. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. God, can I speak to your manager? Like, God, G- Jesus, where's your man? Go, go get your manager. Go get your manager. I don't deserve this. I didn't ask Dennis to put these slides up, so that, but I wanted to read. Um, I usually email Dennis like, hey, can you find these scriptures for me? And I didn't email him these, but I just wanted to read these. Proverbs 3, verse 34. He has no use for conceited people, but shows favor to those who are humble. James 4, 6. But the grace of God is given ever stronger. As the scripture said, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5, God gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. Notice the psalmist here, though, and we're in Psalm. The psalmist realized he has no standing before God, but he cries out to God and humbles himself. And we go on to read in verse 3, then they would have, oops, I turned the wrong page. If you, Lord, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There is forgiveness 
He said, Lord, I could not stand, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And I'm going to hurry because I'm already, I'm always, like I said, I'm always worried that I'm going to run short. And then I realize afterwards that I've got like another three pages to cram in for five minutes. So let's go. Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five. I spent a lot of time here as a youth pastor. And it's something that means a lot to me. We're reading the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter five. I'll turn there real quick. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice that when we're reading through these Beatitudes, kind of like reading a psalm as you're ascending to Jerusalem, it's getting your heart right before God. And the, the whole thing about the Beatitudes is getting your attitude right, realizing who God is and who you are. And it's not meant as a put-down I know I, I, I put the title of this message as Know Your Place. And I realize so often I forget my place. And that rubs, as especially as an American, that kind of rubs, rubs against me. I never thought I was rebellious until I spent time with uh, people from other countries that really like it when the government tells them what to do and how to live. And they like authority. They like rules. They like structure. I never thought I was a rebellious person until people tried to put authority, rules, and structure, and I realized, like, oh, I still got a lot of that cowboy in me where I don't, like, who are you to tell me what I can and cannot do? Who are you to tell me what I, how I can and cannot live? Who are you to tell me what is safe or unsafe for me to do? Like, you're not in charge. And I realized, man, that is so much dealing with things in my heart. So he's preparing, they're preparing their hearts. A lot of stuff you see in the Bible is God talking to you about your heart and preparing your heart and preparing your attitudes. He said, it's dealing with our attitude. God cares so much about your heart. He said that whoever hates his brother has committed murder. And I started thinking about it. I don't like it too much when people start adding words to scripture because it kind of bugs me a little bit. Like God's word was perfect. What are you, what are you going to make it better? But I was thinking about you hear stuff from one perspective all the time, but whoever hates her sister, whoever gossips about her sister, whoever hates his brother, whoever slanders his brother has committed murder in his heart. Whoever has looked at a woman with lust or whatever, who has ever looked at a man with lust in his heart has committed adultery. So I'm thinking about, Lord, prepare my heart and help me to come to you from a place of humility and recognize recognize who I really am, and Lord, I need you. He has a deep reverence for God, and we realize that he has been forgiven, and we know, um, he said, who can stand there is forgiveness for you that you may be feared. He has a fear of the Lord, and the, one of the things about the fear of the Lord that I think about quite often is when I was a kid, I thought it meant I had to be scared of God. Like, I had to be scared of God. Like, I was, um, I was scared of a lot of things. I was attacked by a parrot when I was five, 
And it was my fault because I was probably taunting the thing because I was in a pet store. But like I got into a fight with a parrot like about that big when I was five. And when you get into a fight with a parrot at five, you lose that fight. You don't win. <laughs> you don't win. So I had a fear of birds. Like I have a fear. There were like if people like you want to hold my like, I don't want to hold your stupid bird. No, I'm like, no. I remember when I was a kid, I went like my son, my, my kindergarten teacher brought a chicken in and I'd wanted nothing to do with that. I had a deep seated fear for birds. In fact, I like to go dove hunting and I will eat dove because I shot it. But I, it's more of the fact that I hate birds that much that I can go shoot a bird. I will eat it because I went dove hunting, but it's like I hate birds and they're scary. I do not like birds. And so when I was a kid, I thought like I had to be like, okay, think of God like a bird. Like I got to be afraid of God. And the fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God, but it's having a respect and a reverence for it. I work with electricity by trade. And um, I've had to watch videos where people have disappeared because of the voltage and the currents that they make a mistake and it explodes. And it turns out they call it an arc flash where you cross one phase of electricity with another, and where that explosion hits, if you accidentally put something across the phases, that explosion, at the point of it, burns seven times hotter than the surface of the sun. I have seen videos of people disappear, vaporized, because they did something wrong, and it exploded to the point where it doesn't, like, people say, like, oh, that's good. It doesn't hurt. They found boots. That's it. They found your boots. That was what they found left of you. I've watched videos of guys that have had to go through some hard things in the hospital that survived, and a lot of them said it would have been probably better if he did not, but he did, so we're going to start the long road of recovery from a burn, and the burns come from, they travel down your muscles and your bones, they don't burn your exterior, they burn you from the inside. If you are, they show you these things when you start working in electricity, because they said, we don't want you to be scared of it, but we want you to realize the potential that's here. We want you to have a healthy respect for it so that you don't come to work flippantly and start goofing off. We'll fire those guys quick. I don't need to work with somebody that's a fool and it's going to get me hurt. And so that, that to me now, when I think of fear of the Lord, I think of fear of the Lord as working with electricity. Like, I'm not afraid of electricity. We use it all the time. But I understand a little bit more about it and now I have a healthy respect for it I have a healthy respect for what it can do. I'm already starting to run real late, so I'm going to hurry. <laughs> um, and it goes on to talk about the hope in the Lord, and that kind of a hope is not a G.I. hope that the Lord will be there for me when I need him. Um, when I was in high school, I used to do a lot of rock climbing, and it, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed rock climbing, and I realized now I tried to do it again. And you know how they say it's just like riding a bike? Rock climbing is nothing like riding a bike. If you don't do it, you can't just jump back into it. Like stuff that I used to do just to warm up now was making me cry and like I was sweating and I'm chubby now. I didn't used to be chubby in high school. Like I can't do it. I can't do it. But I used to, you get, you like at first you're really afraid to fall and they, you know, they give you ropes and they teach you the right way to tie these knots and how to clip things off. And the best thing you can do is take a really good fall and land in your harness and realize I'm okay. Like, I'm not going to die. The rope is good. The protection I put in the wall is good. My harness is good. I did everything right. The guy below me who's holding the rope and won't just let it fly out, like, it stopped. You fall into your harness and you realize you're good. So now when I would go, so when I was younger and I would go rock climbing, I would do it without fear if I had a rope because I've fallen into the rope. 
I know what's going to happen. That's the kind of hope that we're putting in. When he's talking about having hope in the Lord, it's not like, oh man, I really hope the Lord's going to be there. It's like, no, I'm putting my trust in this rope and this harness because I've seen it save me. I know it's going to be there when I need it. Having hope in the Lord is not like, oh man, I really hope. It's like, no, I've fallen and the Lord's caught me. I've fallen and he's been there for me. See, I have hope in the Lord. And, so, and uh, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than those who search in the morning, yes, more than those who watch from morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. The posture of humility before God and redemption comes. Um, I was talk, thinking, tying this back earlier about um, my heart and preparing my heart for the, before the Lord, preparing my heart before I would take junior hires and high schoolers on retreats, thinking about preparing your heart as you're going up to Israel, you're going up to Jerusalem, and we're preparing our heart for that. And you know, it's something I was thinking about too, as we are coming into a time of Lent and coming into a time of Easter, and you know, these things can be good, these times, but something I was thinking about is Jesus came and he told the Jewish people and he told the Pharisees that they had vain repetition. They had vain service. Like, this is, this is a waste of your time. What are you doing? What are you doing? Because for them, after a while, it had become about the tradition over 3,000 years. It became, I've got to show up at this time. I wear these clothes. I do these things because this is this time of year. And like, I'm not, here to, I'm not here to poke holes in things, but when I start thinking about things like the church calendar, it can be a really beautiful time. It was intended to draw our hearts back towards God. Like this psalm was intended when you're walking up to Jerusalem to realize what the Lord has forgiven you for. And that the, and if you're in a place of desperation, you can cry out to God and he's like, I will be there for you. And then after a while, some people, it just turned into rote tradition. And man, the time of Easter, the time of Lent, it can be really beautiful, but it can also just turn into something almost like a Pharisee. Like, well, yeah, I go and I do these things because this is the time of year. And we, you know, we're going to do this. We're going to have this service. We're going to go to Good Friday. I'm going to get some ashes on my forehead. I'm going to get a baby wipe and wipe it off before I go out the door because I got a sales meeting and I don't want to look like a weirdo. Like, there's a lot of, like, after a while, it can just become rote and there's no change. And really, these things are designed to draw your heart back towards God. These things are designed to draw your heart to go God. So as we're moving into Easter and we're moving into this Lent season, I really want to encourage you, man, use this as a time to draw your heart back towards God. Don't let it just become the thing we do because it's the correct time of year. This is the time of year I wear a pastel suit. And I, gosh, I wish those would come back because I looked cool when I was five and I would go to church in the pastel suits, right? It's a vain tradition. And actually now when we're thinking about it and we're talking about preparing our hearts, right? The Jews were preparing their hearts to go before God, to go up to temple. And we're gonna move into a time of communion. And, and, and I say it not from a place of up here telling you you need to get right with the Lord because most often the things that I preach 
are because all week the Lord's been like, hey, Justin, look what you're really bad at. Like, you need to do this, 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 and this. Like, you, I'm coming from a place of, like, the Lord is like, man, Justin, you need to get your heart right before me. You've got pride in there, and you've got arrogance. Somebody once told me if you're not dealing with pride actively, then you're probably proud. If you're not trying to fight pride, then, you've, then you're proud. So as we're getting ready for, to move into this time of communion, I pray, Lord, please help me prepare my heart and help me to come to you in a place of repentance, realizing that I, I need you, that I need you, and that I need to be forgiven from these things.